Welcome to FRT, the IEF podcast on the intersection of finance, regulation and technology. I'm Brad Carr and today we're back home at the IEF headquarters in Washington, visited by Kati Swaminen here today from Los Angeles. Kati is the founder and CEO of Next Trade Group. She's also the founder of Business for E-Trade Development and adjunct professor at UCLA. Kati is joining us to discuss some of the ways in which technology may revolutionise global trade in the coming years. And we'll also talk through the implications that come from that specifically for trade finance. Cardi, thank you for joining us and welcome to FRT. Thanks very much. Thank you for having me. To begin, uh, there are some extensive opportunities for technology to modernise international trade and trade finance is often described as ripe for innovation. Uh, Indeed, when we discussed trade finance innovation back on FRT episode 20 with Mike Hogan and Richard Cengaretti, they each went a little bit further and told me that it was in fact overdue for innovation. So I guess being in the forefront of some of that innovation, can you firstly tell us a bit about your business at Next Trade Group? Yeah, well, thank you. Well, we've been working over the past six years with uh, technology companies such as MasterCard, eBay, Google, PayPal, as well as with international development agencies, uh, USAID, World Bank, Inter Market Development Bank, a number of others on enabling trade through technology in particular. This takes various forms. Uh, One form is to help companies and governments optimize public policies in order to accelerate the diffusion of technologies. Another is to simply enable technology companies to identify new markets, for instance, at subnational levels in a very granular way, even at the zip code level. And the third is to further the deployment of technology. So we have very concrete pilot programs, for instance, where we help companies test their technologies in different markets. The end result that we're always seeking is greater adoption of technology in order to enable trade, facilitate trade flows, and of course, produce economic growth and incomes in developing nations. We've been also um, forming a number of public-private partnerships. We're Mm -hmm. big believers of the governments and private sectors working together and have formed six of these involving some of the major entities like the United Nations and USAID. Uh, on the public sector side and on the private sector side, number of technology companies and ourselves are also using technology, particularly kind of machine learning and artificial intelligence in the analytical work that we do. It's a fascinating time for those technologies and, uh, and great that you're at the forefront of that. I think of all, and if I explain the, ins- the inspiration for why we were so keen to invite you here, uh, of all the conferences that I attended last year, I think probably the single most striking presentation I heard was the one that you gave at the, the International Chamber of Commerce in Miami last year. We were both speaking at that event, and I thought I had some really reasonably interesting stuff to talk about with the finalisation of Bale 3 for trade finance, but I definitely faded away into the background alongside the great piece that you covered on the potential of, of 3D printing. And if I can recount this correctly, you described the scenario of a consumer in London who perhaps might identify some shoes from a Miami designer, and that they would buy or, or order these shoes in a format where they would be printed the same day in London, uh, perhaps in your own home, perhaps at a local 3D printing factory in your suburb, and you then collect those or have those delivered and you're able to wear them out that evening. And the scenario that you painted fundamentally changes trade flows. We, we move away from the trade of finished goods perhaps to more of, in part, I guess, there's the trade of the bulk goods that go as the inputs into 3D printing, but probably more importantly, the intellectual property inherent in the designer's pattern is really you know, more what we see as the core basis of trade. How realistic is that scenario, and, and how soon do you think we'll see that kind of thing emerge? Well, I think it's actually already happening. We're um, underappreciating how quickly this is diffusing. Every single athletic shoe company is already 3D printing shoes. Uh, Nike, Adidas, Under Armour all have been introducing 3D printable shoes 
Some of them use maybe a few parts of the shoe, like the sole that is 3D printed. Others have 3D printed multiple parts and also improve the techniques to bring that shoe together, which is a rather complex apparatus. Yeah, right. And uh, this is happening. And Adidas, for instance, has been announcing a production of 100,000 shoes of this kind. I think they are targeting a million. Wow. Um, and there are some other kind of more boutique entities, like an entity in uh, San Diego called Feeds, mm-hmm. F-E-E-T-Z, where you can go and online design your own shoe and um, have them 3D print that, assemble that, and then ship it to you. It's a little bit of a different scenario yeah. than we just yeah. painted, but it, technology is already there. And uh, this is absolutely happening. And I think it's also going to accelerate on the back of greater customer demand for customized products. So we're moving away from kind of mass production systems that have dominated the industrial revolution since Henry Ford uh, to more mass customization. And 3D printing enables this. It enables companies to make money by customizing products. And instead of having large production runs with standardized products you have you know smaller production runs with customized products yes and this is what's the future i think of particularly kind of b2c uh, markets the really big impact if i may of 3d printing i believe is when 3d printers are being used to mold metals and produce metal parts and components this has been very difficult uh, 3d printing has been used successfully in plastics for a very long time and certainly also in uh, prototyping car parts and other things in air, airplane parts by Ford and Boeing and other major companies. This has been around for 20, 30 years. I was watching an episode of, of I think it's the Grand Tour, the, the thing that the old Top Gear guys used to do. And they were talking about that just a couple of weeks ago as well. Yeah. And what's the interesting thing is that, you know, so far... 3D printing has been used in those industries, oftentimes just to prototype new products and yes. to accelerate the innovation. But the mass manufacturing of, say, cars made with 3D printable parts has also been quite elusive still. However, this is now changing. Just last year, HP introduced a new printer called Metal Jet that is 50 times faster or more efficient than traditional 3D printers is able to produce 3D printable parts from metals basically at kind of infernal um, uh, heat levels. That's what's needed is is very high levels of heat. And already Volkswagen and other players are using those. So I think this is the big game changer for international trade once once this starts. And I've seen some work, which I cited in that conference from PricewaterhouseCoopers, for instance, that 3D printing could impact as much as 37% of ocean-bound containerized trade, 25% of trucking, 41% of air cargo, as it diffuses across these different industries like vehicles, uh, like uh, shoes, footwear, machinery, and so forth. And the insurance company ING has forecast that by year 2060, 25% 25% of international trade will be demolished because of 3D printing. And I think it will. it's starting already, but it's starting particularly in parts and components. And as things get more sophisticated and robotics advance and robots are getting cheaper as well, you can imagine a marriage between 3D printers and robots and you know, your factory is basically a, a man and a laptop and a, mm. or a woman for that matter, yes, yeah, <laughs> and a yeah. laptop and a 3D printer and a robot that assembles the final product. And that's where we're going, is smaller manufacturing shops near the end consumer, producing customized products on demand. So it totally changes not only trade flows, but as you move to more of a decentralized manufacturing environment, 
But the other thing you, you said that, that I think really struck me was this point about the increased demand from consumers for, for customised product. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I think resonates with those of us in the banking and insurance sector as well, because a lot of what we we hear from our member firms at the IF particularly is about trying to keep pace with the increased demand that people have for the personalisation and the customisation that they've come to expect in other industries. But they now expect that from their bank and their insurer as well. And I think as you articulate, well, they also expect it in the, the tangible physical goods that they buy or that they can design and order themselves as well. Absolutely. And already car companies, just the mainstream car companies are producing in fact, with 3D printers, parts and components for cars that are customized mm. uh, or can have your initials or what have you um, yeah, right. and different colors and so on. So it's definitely happening. And surveys indicate that it's particularly the consumers that are 16 to 39 years old today that are the likeliest to demand these um, yeah, yeah. You know, customized products and are ready to pay a premium for them. Yeah. So th- this is coming perhaps for... For us who are not in that category any longer, it seems a little far-fetched, but I think for the younger generation, it's not at all. And like you said, they have been accustomed to expecting that from other services mm. and industries, and why not from white goods and vehicles? Yes. Yeah. So we see international trade becoming more about the trade of the intellectual property, the trade of the pattern. And I want to pick up a little further on that aspect, because I think this could be the real embodiment of the so-called data economy or the transition to a data economy but with an important dependency then on the free flow of that data across borders. Does this exacerbate the importance of curtailing data localization measures uh, and where such measures feature in trade agreements at the moment? Well, yeah, you're absolutely right that trade is digitizing. Certainly it is still (laughs) predominantly about uh, physical products, but increasingly trade is about kind of bits and bytes, products that are digital products, that are um, perhaps 3D printed in um, other markets or otherwise produced in other markets. Similarly, services, you can imagine architectural services, engineering services, business services, legal services, are digitally enabled. And most of them are performed, uh, if from other markets, digitally uh, and delivered digitally as well. So the content of international trade is actually digital. Hmm. And that means that there is data traveling. These are basically, you know, bits and bytes of data that are traveling from market to market. And with that, our trade policies have to, of course, evolve and have become actually very contentious on this area of movement of data from market to market. I think there's a couple of points there. One is that if we're thinking about products like 3D printable shoes, should those products be taxed the same way? Should they have customs duties the same way as a physical product that arrives in the UK or Brazil or whatnot? Or should it escape customs duties if it's Mm. simply a model passed from one market to another digitally and then 3D printed in the other market? Many trade agreements now are barring that. So digital products are not allowed to have customs duties, basically duty-free and should have non-discriminatory treatment in that sense in both markets. For instance, the USMCA has that provision. And um, the other element here is, of course, the famous uh, transfer of data across markets. And as we've seen with uh, US and Europe, there is a very contentious uh, issue with European 
data protection regulation GDPR. Yes. There are multiple other markets that somehow limit the flow of data. For instance, certain provinces in Canada have different data regulations on the transfer of data from province to province, for instance. And as you know, in Australia, I think there are certain sectors where the data transfer is limited, for instance, in healthcare and people's medical records from yes. to outside the country. So there's a very colorful map of these prohibitions or criteria on how to transfer data from market to market. And this, of course, is complicating companies' life, lives, the U.S. positions at least at the WTO, and then um, as we've seen in the U.S. MCA digital trade chapter, which is probably the most advanced trade chapter to date, is that uh, there should be a free transfer of data that every market can, of course, uh, have the liberty to protect the consumer data and, and privacy issues. But the transfer of data across markets should be free and non-discriminatory. Yes, and I think that's a big theme as we come into the the Japanese G20 presidency and both the We'll have a number of IIF events attached at the time of the finance minister's meeting in Fukuoka, uh, just over a month from now. We'll have our data localization roundtable in Tokyo on June 5, and that's going to focus very much on a number of the, the issues you touch on uh, in the lead-up to the Leaders' Summit in, in Osaka. Katia, another topic we've discussed previously is the future of trade finance in a world where technologies such as smart contracts and digital identity enable trade finance to be expedited, where perhaps the necessity of 90 or 180 day letters of credit give way to the emergence of real-time settlement, for instance. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a great prospect for some sellers and maybe not for some buyers who who might need to utilise the working capital that they can find inherently in the, the current structures. Are there models you see to address these these asymmetrical needs between buyers and sellers? Well, yeah, I think you're absolutely right that buyers use sellers for credit uh, still in international trade and certainly in emerging markets where buyers oftentimes want payment terms of 90 days or even longer. And perhaps as a result, we are seeing the proliferation of open account uh, sales instead of sales made with letter of credit. And then I guess exporters are seeking trade credit insurance in order to insure against the non-payment by the buyer. Yes. But um, um, at the same time, letters of credit are still very widely used, particularly in Asia and, of course, with the larger companies that are able to secure them easily and uh, faster than small ones. And I think absolutely, if we can utilize blockchain and smart contracts, uh, linking perhaps the execution of trade finance or letters of credit to the movement of products uh, in the supply chain, even perhaps slicing that payment up into 10 different segments as the product moves closer to the buyer, as different contractual obligations are being met on the product's journey, perhaps we can, we can sequence things in interesting ways that are accommodate both the buyer and seller and trigger payments automatically and take some of the intermediaries out. I think there's a lot of opportunities that are interesting there. But then um, there are certainly also other innovations that could be considered. For instance, I've come across this concept with some of the payment companies that we've been working with that, in a way, credit cards lend themselves Uh to solving some of the trade finance challenges and the trade famous trade finance gap that we're seeing that in a way, when you go to a restaurant, you give your credit card, but you can pay that as a buyer that bill in 30, 45 days. Yes. You have that time period, which is essentially the payment terms, whereas the seller, the, the restaurant owner, will get his or her money in 
day or two, a maximum. Yes. And this is in a way already used by companies as an instrument of trade finance. And a lot of companies that do smaller trade transactions are using credit cards. I think also for precisely for this purpose. So, you know, it's a nice balance that enables the seller to give the buyer still flexibility and payment terms. And a lot of sellers, as you know, compete now on this. Can they give the buyer better payment terms, particularly in products that are more commoditized, where you don't have too many ways to find an edge against the competitors. But maybe this type of a solution will unlock trade, uh, particularly with the smaller firms that are unable to secure letters Mm. of credit or are making just small transactions that letters of credit don't lend themselves to necessarily. It's an interesting scenario. And I think probably one that the banks or new entrants that seek to be active in that space need to think through what the liquidity provision might look like. Because in that model where if you think of it in the credit card scenario as a consumer, you might have the the up to 45 days interest free. Mm-hmm. Uh, you are receiving free credit, but free liquidity, which the card issuer provides to you on the assumption that they're making sufficient profitability elsewhere from that relationship. If someone's going to be providing that liquidity and taking that credit risk in the trade scenario, even just providing the liquidity on its own, if it was insured credit, the interesting piece would be how they can monetize that where the liquidity provider can be rewarded or monetized for for that provision. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think, for instance, export-import banks that are uh, looking for new solutions to reach particularly the smaller uh, entities that are engaged in trade uh, through e-commerce. A lot of small companies are, for the first time, enabled, if you will, to uh, engage in trade. Uh, And export-import banks should, of course, uh, help those companies uh, but oftentimes mm. have trouble finding them or identifying them or connecting to them. Uh, this could be a nice solution to partner with some of those providers. And uh, in some of these surveys that I've run on companies that are using e-commerce to understand what their constraints to doing e-commerce are, I have found actually that a lot of companies already use credit cards in cross-border transactions. So it's in a way companies have figured this out already yeah, yeah, and it's happening, yeah. but perhaps it can be systematized and promoted and perhaps some of the, even some of the, costs um, or uh, interest rates can be lowered with the support of government entities like Exim Banks. Absolutely. Look, lastly, you've, you've written a number of prominent books, uh, and I want to touch on your next one, uh, Revolutionising World Trade, How Disruptive Technologies Open Opportunities for All, which I believe is scheduled for publication in November. I've managed to find it on Amazon, can pre-order it either in hard copy or soft copy form on, on Amazon. You can't yet buy it on Kindle, but I'm sure that will come in uh, in due course for those of us that uh, are more inclined to, to read via that medium. But can you tell us a little bit about the focus of this this new book that you have coming shortly? Yes, well, thank you. I wrote this because um, I thought some years ago I started to realize that not only was there e-commerce that was enabling a new set of players to enter world trade, which are small businesses, but there were a number of new technologies that were coming to the scene at the time, like 3D printing, like blockchain, like uh, Internet of Things, all of which I realized were starting to reshape globalization and trade. And so I wrote a book looking at how different kinds of technologies are changing the way companies make, move, and market products around the world, as well as services, touching on such areas as how our technology is changing trade logistics, uh, supply chain management, trade finance, uh, marketing, um, purchasing, if you will, predictive analytics, as well as production of goods. And my conclusion is basically that we're on the verge of a new era of globalization. We're on the verge, for instance, of globalization that's not anymore driven by physical global supply chains, but is platform enabled. Uh, companies are using platform to transact 
platforms to transact and uh, exchange goods and services. In many ways, the world that our generation has come to know, the, the kind of globalization where large companies create supply chains, they assemble products in China and uh, yes, or yep. Mexico or Poland and um, draw on part suppliers from all around the world and run these elaborate uh, global supply chains, manage them, manage inventories. In a way, that era is coming to an end. Mm. I think we're mm. looking at a totally different paradigm of globalization where the content of trade is, uh, it is different, where the patterns, the players, the, the possibilities, indeed, even the politics of trade will be uh, quite different. So unlike the you know f- world is flat that Tom Friedman wrote and that shaped kind of the thinking of, of an entire generation, and in fact that globalization, that paradigm of globalization informed um, thousands of trade policy decisions, the activities of international aid agencies, uh, you know, countless of policy papers from think tanks here in Washington. I think we're looking at a different way, basically you know, facilitated by Industry 4.0 that is changing dramatically yeah, yeah. the way companies are operating and by virtue of that changing international trade. But there are a number of challenges as well, and that's what I wanted to highlight in this volume. For instance, digital divides, kind of slow technology adoption rates, arcane policies that we discussed just then, you know, challenges with data transfer regimes or or other policy issues that are emerging with the changes that we're seeing and um, certain kind of outdated institutions, you know, for instance, customs, uh, administrations, how they can adopt to this new world. So I think there's a number of challenges that need to be addressed and a lot of them have to do with governments and and policymakers that kind of have to catch up and devise a new way to address this and facilitate this new way of globalization, which I believe can be incredibly empowering and inclusive and prosperous wave. Uh, Only we have to uh, work on it. It doesn't happen on its own. Yes, yeah. Look, that's a fascinating and, and in many ways exciting new world ahead that you paint there. And I'm definitely going to be looking to November and putting this on my Christmas reading list because I think from the way you've described it on uh, in our discussion, in terms of some of the practical examples, you know, the very tangible illustrations you've given, I can see where you're uh, able to not only map out that paradigm but also bring it to life. So, Cardi, thank you very much for, for joining us. And if I can just briefly highlight, I think, uh, a couple of the key takeaways I've really extracted or most uh, gravitated to in your comments. I really like the point you make that the 3D printing scenario is already happening and the example you give with the athletic shoes companies and the way that you've linked that to the, the graded customer demand for customised products. Uh, as we see that happening in, in industries all over the place, including in banking, as well as in white goods and clothing and, uh, and what people have come to expect from services. The point you made about the graduation, if you like, of 3D printing, of moving on from plastics and into moulding metals, the opportunities that what we see in in things like cars and aircraft, but also the quite dramatic numbers that you mentioned on the uh, reduction in the trade of physical goods. I think you said it was a 37% reduction in sea freight, 20% on trucks, and and I think it was 40-something, 40% perhaps on on air freight. Yeah, these are uh, big material impacts that fundamentally change our view of the world. The fact that trade is digitising and that it's less about goods and more about bites resonates very much with the speech that uh, Japanese Prime Minister Abe gave in January, his Bites Without Borders speech, and, and very much the flavour that he's looking to take into the upcoming G20 discussions. And I, th- I like the way you connected that then to the point about 3D printed shoes and that example of 3D printing working for goods that are, are not subject to customs duties. That opens up a whole new philosophical discussion there in some mm-hmm. ways as to, to where the, the taxation would naturally uh, lie. And lastly, I think the credit card-like scenario for providing liquidity and the opportunities and challenges in in provision of liquidity 
And I think lastly, I really like the description you've offered of your upcoming book, the, the verge of the new era of globalization and that it's a new era enabled by platforms rather than by global supply chains. It is a very much an interesting new paradigm that we're, we're staring into. So thank you for, for sharing that with us. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Looking ahead on FRT, we have some more great guests joining us in the coming weeks. Rob Atkinson, President of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, will join me to discuss the so-called tech lash. Doug Elliott of Oliver Wyman will be discussing the World Economic Forum's Consumer Data Rights Report. And Mark Zelmer, formerly OSFI's member of the Bail Committee, will discuss the emergence of open banking in Canada and deposit stability with me in Ottawa as well. Please tune in again for those upcoming episodes via the IAF website, on SoundCloud, and now also on Apple Podcasts. I'm Brad Carr, and thanks for joining us on FRT.